This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. The good news of the gospel. If you're able to remain standing, I invite you to open to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, you'll find that on page 973 in the Black Pew Bibles. We've been making our way through the book of Galatians. A reminder that in this book, the Apostle Paul is defending the truth of the gospel as he refers to it. That salvation is a gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the merits of Christ alone. He's defending this from a group of Jewish teachers we called Judaizer who did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It was essential to believe in, in Christ and Jesus. It was good, but simply not good enough that to faith in Christ you must add obedience to the law of Moses. And so Paul is counteracting that. And when we find ourselves here in Galatians 2, He's writing to these churches in a region called Galatia that were mostly Gentiles, but he's recounting a confrontation he had with Peter, the apostle. Uh, That begins in verse 14. Uh, Let me begin reading there, and I'll read to verse 21. I mentioned last week that I believe all of this is a recounting of his confrontation with Peter. Verse 14 of Galatians 2, writing to the Galatians, he says, When I saw that their conduct, that was Peter and other Jewish Christians, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter's Aramaic name, before them all, and here begins the quote that goes all the way through verse 21. If you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, when no one was looking, right? (laughs) And not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also, that is we also, we Jews also, Peter, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, that's in quotes, I think, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading and hearing to all your hearts. You can have a seat. Thank you. Well, last week our focus was on verse 16. 
uh, just a glorious verse, right? A, the gospel in a nutshell. A single sentence summary of the heart and soul of the Christian message, the Christian gospel. Verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel heart is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is based on the grace of God alone received through faith alone. And justification being what? Justification not being a process uh, of becoming better or holier. Justification being a once for all, unrepeatable, unchangeable verdict. This is a courtroom language, the verdict of God, right? Where he pronounces sinful people like you and me, he pronounces us categorically in his judgment from then on to be not guilty and perfectly righteous. That is justification. That is glorious news. It is our simply to receive by faith because the basis of it is not our life, our merit, but the perfect righteousness of Christ and his own sacrifice for our sins. So we are justified by the dying and the doing of Jesus alone. Now someone has said, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. We're singing, my hope is built, right? My hope is built on nothing. We sing nothing less. We know it's true, nothing more either. <laughs> nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. We're saved by the dying and doing of the Son of God, Jesus. Here's another hymn, <clears throat> Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Yeah. And so this is the gospel. This is, this is good news, which is what the, scripture, the word gospel means. And it should be shocking when someone hears it for the first time. That's it, huh? Nothing to do. No. Nothing to merit the love of God for me. No. Nothing to improve in my life or change, to purify myself, to make myself better. No. It's all been done. Yes. It's mine simply to accept on God's terms, by faith alone. Yes. How can it be? And that's how the gospel should sound when it comes to some for that first time. And sometimes it gets, sounds like that again to us who've known it already. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that salvation by grace through faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God that no man should boast. You see, soli del gloria, to God alone be the glory, because he's the one who does everything to save sinners and transform our standing before him. And so the freeness of the grace of God, the complete freeness of salvation in Christ is so good that it seems impossible because it goes contrary to our natural inclination to contribute, to do something, to stand on our own two feet in some way, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves. That's our natural 
bent. And this idea of utterly free grace achieved and accomplished all by God goes against that. And when it's understood clearly, when it's proclaimed clearly, it, it, it gives rise to all sorts of objections. Here's one objection, and Paul's heard this one before. <laughs> doesn't this gospel of yours of justification by faith alone, doesn't that lead to sinning? <laughs> I mean, why be good at all then, if it's all been done for me? Doesn't that lead people to just basically take advantage of the grace of God? Paul's heard that before. And he answers it later in the book of Romans. And in that, in that, in that broad sense there, he says, for example, in Romans chapter 6, having said we're justified by faith in chapter 5, in Romans 6, he said, what shall we say then? He's now giving voice to this uh, objector. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase, that grace might abound? You know, I sin, more grace. I sin, more grace, so God's glorified. <laughs> he says, by no means, may it never be. Here it is. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so that's an objection he's heard. And what he says there is that God who justifies the ungodly doesn't just declare them just, he also does something to them. We've died to sin, he says in Romans 6, along with being justified. Now here, he answers a question in Galatians that's a little more focused, a little more narrowed, it's more nuanced. It's very similar because what he's answering here is, is a similar question, but it's based on the fact that he's answering it as a Jewish Christian to another Jewish Christian who is Peter. So it's more nuanced, what he says here in the book of Galatians. Verse 17. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And that's the objection. Would Christ be a servant of sin if we... This is the objection stated. The we and our, all that, that's us Jewish Christians. Uh, if in our endeavor, Peter, you and me as Jewish Christians, to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, quotes, what's Paul mean there? He's not saying we were actually sinning. He means what he said in verse 15. Uh, they were Jews by birth, and then there's what? Then there's Gentile, quote, sinners, people who don't have the law. And so he says, so now that we've come to be justified by Christ, and therefore, when you turn to Christ, we Jewish Christians turned away from the law of Moses in order to turn to Christ, and we discovered our liberty in Christ, and, and so we stopped doing the things the law said we had to do, and we started doing what? We started eating with Gentiles. The law says you can't do that. We started going into homes with Gentiles. The law says you can't do that. We started eating non-kosher foods. The law says you you cannot do that. So now we've turned to Christ to be justified and we're, quote, discovered to be sinners in that way, you see. What's that mean, Peter? Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? <laughs> that Christ is a servant of sin because he's led us away from the righteousness of, of the law and given us a righteousness that is his own? No. 
Certainly not. That's his answer. Absolutely not. It's laughable to think that Christ would be a servant of sin because he led us away from a righteousness that would never satisfy God and set us free from the law of Moses and brought us a righteousness that is is his own. What happened to Peter? What happened to Peter? We need to know because what happened to him could easily happen to us. And Peter lost sight of the, of the cross. He's lost the sight of the things we've been singing. He lost sight of the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of the righteousness that is given to him in Christ. And losing sight of that, he returned to adding some righteousness of his own from the law and compelling Gentiles who never were Jews to start living like Jews, you see, if they were going to be right with God. This was something that was common. You understand the early church. I think you remember that. We think at this point in Galatians, when he wrote this, they had not yet quite settled that question more definitively in, in Jerusalem. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, a church in, uh, in the ancient world again, and he says to them something similar they were struggling with, and he says in Colossians chapter 2 that in Christ you are complete. He was telling these Gentiles, you're, you're complete in Christ, and then he says, verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or Sabbath, he says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. (laughs) They were shadows, and Christ is the body that was casting the shadow, and now the body's come. So don't, and you're, you're complete in him, so don't let anyone judge you when it comes to special diets and special days, because that's all been set aside. Peter lost sight of that. He was impressed he was pressured by these Jewish teachers who said faith in Christ was good, but you need to still obey the law of Moses. Well, the things that they were doing before these guys came, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, the things they were doing were all things the law said they couldn't do, right? Eating non-kosher food and sitting at a table with Gentiles. Now, 17, verse 17, the second half. If we were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? That's the logic. You see the logic? If he's led us away from the law, so that now we do things the law said we couldn't do, does that make him a servant of sin? His answer is emphatic. That's one of his favorite emphatic denials. Paul says that in Romans Three several times, Romans 6, may it never be, certainly not. In other words, it's just unbelievable you would even ask the question. It's laughable. That's the response to the charge that's being leveled, the objection. And what he does in verse 18 is he explains why that would be the case. In other words, Christ is not a servant of sin, certainly not. For, verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be 
a transgressor. Hmm. You know, Peter would later write a letter, and Peter said, Paul has written some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> I think this may be one of them, right? And so he says, this is why Christ is not a servant of sin when he leads us away from the law. And, they, and then he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, what, what does he mean? Well, it depends on what, what he's tearing down and what's being rebuilt, you see. And it, it refers, I think, to the law of Moses, to the old covenant, to that whole arrangement. And Paul is, you know, I tear down that very verb, I tear down or I destroy. That's used by Matthew in, in the Gospel of Matthew in 5.17 to refer to tearing down the Old Testament law. I think it's very similar to what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. He uses a slightly different Greek term, but the same idea is there, and, and he actually expands on it. In Ephesians 2, this is what he says to those Gentile believers. He's not talking to a Jew now. When he writes Ephesians, he's talking to Gentiles. In, in Ephesians 2, he says, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, that is peace with God and peace between Jews and Gentiles, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, we're now one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was a wall of division between Jew and Gentile that the law had built up, right? It served this purpose over time, but Christ in his body, when he was crucified, he tore down that wall of hostility. How did he do that? Verse 15, Ephesians 2, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Boy, that's a strong language, right? Abolishing. Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He tore down, as it were, the old covenant arrangement the law of Moses as that which framed how his people would know God, know him, worship him, approach him, be acceptable to him. He, he tore that whole system down when he was crucified, you see. And what Paul is saying, if I, if I go back, if I build up what I've torn down, I'm the true transgressor. <laughs> Why? How so? Because I broke God's will. What do you mean you broke God's will? God is the one who tore down the Old Testament law through his son, right? And if I try to set it back up again as essential to be accepted by him, then I'm rebuilding what's been torn down and I prove myself to be the real transgressor. You see, I'm trying to set the clock back when God says the clock has moved forward. The, the old covenant is over. It has been superseded by what? The new covenant. Not in the blood of animals, goats, and bulls, which were only symbolic, but in the blood of our Savior, the Son of God himself, you see. Uh, we, we've, we need to remember that the covenants of God move throughout history, salvation history, and they keep framing new ways in which his people will know him and approach him, and the old covenant law was good. Paul says elsewhere, it's, it's righteous, it's good, but you see, it's no longer in force as the framework for how we know God and worship him. And the people of God are no longer primarily one ethnic 
group, Jews, living in a theocracy in the promised land under the law of Moses. The people of God now are a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Living where? All over the globe. <laughs> and so Paul says to Peter, if I were to rebuild what I, what, what I tore down, meaning in his own experience as a person, as a Christian, then I'm really the true transgressor, not Christ. Not Christ for leading me away from the law of Moses. When Jesus died, the veil was torn in the temple, remember? From top to bottom, from heaven to earth. And Peter and those were trying to sew it back up again. Sew it up again. and Add to what Jesus has done. A new era has arrived. And they weren't living any longer in light of it. And that was the error. Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 23, he's speaking about the, the eras and the, how one covenant ends, another begins. Galatians 3, 23, before faith came, it doesn't mean that no one ever had faith, but the age of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith, the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, a guardian. We're under him. We're in Christ. So Paul says that's the true transgression when you go back, you see. To return to the law, put it this way, to return to the law of Moses for a fuller or better righteousness to be added to Christ like Peter was doing? Peter, that's the transgression. <laughs> Not no longer eating kosher foods. Not no longer avoiding Gentiles. That's the true transgression. Christ came, he finished it. And you're adding to it. You're setting the clock backwards. J.B. Lightfoot, a New Testament commentator, says this. He says, the sin, the sin is not in abandoning the law but in seeking it again once it has been abandoned. That's it. The sin is not in abandoning the law, but in seeking it again once it has been abandoned. It. And who abandoned it? God. God through his son, the father through his son. So no, no, no. Christ is not the servant of sin when he leads us away from the law to be justified as him. The true transgressor is the one who goes back and tries to find a better righteousness by adding it to Christ. So we may look like Gentile sinners, Peter, to them, the Judaizers. The real sinner is them, the real transgressor. The reformer John Calvin said this about these verses. He said, the Jews were mistaken in claiming any holiness for themselves outside Christ, for there was none. Hence the complaint, 
Did Christ come to take the righteousness of the law away from us to change saints into sinners, to subject us to sin and guilt? Paul denies it and rebuts the blasphemy with horror. May never be. Christ did not introduce sin. He unveiled it. He did not take away righteousness, but stripped the Jews of their false cloak. That's what he did. Stripped them of their false cloak. Remember last week we said, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that he of all Jews had a whole lot to boast about. <laughs> but he says, I consider everything I ever accomplished as a Jewish rabbi and a Pharisee to be nothing but dung. And I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You see, that's a false cloak. But I want to be found with a righteousness that comes from God through faith. That's what Paul says in, in Philippians 3. So you picture that. Huh? That's what, this is what, in essence, Peter was doing. You picture yourself, because you come to Christ to be justified by his sacrifice and his righteousness, in God's eyes, you stand clothed, as we said, we sang together, clothed in his righteousness. We are clothed, you standing before God in this blazing white righteousness of the Son of God, and then you start adding filthy rags and cover it up which is your attempts to improve upon the perfect life of the Son of God. That's in essence what Peter was doing, and Paul is saying, that's the real transgression right there. Now, we, we said last week, I will say again, it's a good point to pause and think about this, by way of application, you know, it's easy to pick on Peter. It seems like he was given to us for that, right? We all need somebody. We can easily say, you know, we can say, like Peter, we can say we thoroughly believe in justification by faith alone. I mean, that's my confession. That, I defend that. That's it. I believe that we believe it. Yet we can create, we can build up walls of separation and division in, among the people of God. Why? By classifying believers. Maybe not by going back to Old Testament law. We, we can create the haves and the have-nots. You know, the super disciples and the, you know, what do we call them? Everyday people? <laughs> Everyday disciples? It's easy to do that. Even unintentionally, you know? But the truth is that every single one of us that's a Christian is justified before God by the righteousness of Christ alone. And the basis of our relationship with God is only governed by that, by whether we have faith in His Son and whether we're living by faith in His Son. We often do this, I mentioned before, we often do this with the spiritual disciplines, which are useful, they're given to us by God, they're helpful, they're necessary. Disciplines such as what? Well, such as Bible reading, memorization, uh, serving uh, the body of Christ, uh, being part of worship, um, prayer, etc. These are all uh, spiritual disciplines given to enrich us and help us in our journey to glory but they were never given to become standards by which we then measure others and start categorizing people. 
And that's what, that can, that's what can just ruin the culture of a church. You sang, you said, I'm a sinner through and through. Right? <laughs> and so is your brother, so is your sister. We're, we're clothed in a righteousness that's alien to us, given to us by God. I'm going to start a, I'm going to start a club. It's, it's a club for those who have memorized at least two books in the New Testament. I'm, so, I'm sorry, you can't. Uh, yeah. yeah, I love you, but yeah. I just. Sometimes a church can get to that point where it's, you know, be careful of this. Yeah, we're the true church. We're the ones, man. Paul says later in Galatians, there's not male or female, there's not rich or poor, there's not slave or free men, right? There's not Gentile or Jew. You are all the sons of Abraham in Christ Jesus, right? You see. He doesn't mean there's no distinctions. He means spiritually speaking, we're all on level ground. <laughs> and then in verse 19, what Paul does, he continues to explain why he would be a transgressor if he returned to the law after seeking justification by faith in Christ. Verse 19, notice he begins again with four. So in other words, I rebuilt what I tore down. If I do that, verse 18, I prove myself to be a transgressor. How would you prove yourself to be a transgressor? For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. We'll stop there, see. Paul's explaining why he would be a transgressor if he returned to the law after coming to Christ to be justified. And again, these are one of those hard statements of Paul, and, and frankly, it's been highly debated. There's various understandings of what Paul means here, and the reason is, is that Paul speaks about his relationship with the law. He speaks about his relationship with the law in many different ways. Uh, he uses the term law in the book of Galatians 32 times. <laughs> and what, he, what, what, he's, what he's saying when he's using the word law here and in Romans and other places depends on the point he's trying to make in the discourse. Yeah, there in what? In the context. So sometimes you could read Paul and you, you read what he says about the law and you're like, wow, it's destroyed, it's gone. And then you go somewhere else in Romans and says the law's good. <laughs> From one perspective, it, it depends on several things. So what, is, what does Paul mean here? Well, first of all, let's do this, say this. Notice that he uses the first person uh, pronoun. When he says I, verse 19, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to, the God, to God. Paul is referring to his own experience, but he doesn't mean to make it ex uh, exclusive. In other words, understand this, please, that he, he sees his experience as representative of every believer, is, believer's experience. So understand that. So even though he is a Jew, a rabbi who became a Christian, what he says here applies to everyone, it would just, be experienced differently by someone who had lived like a Jew their whole life like Paul and someone like a Gentile who never had anything to do with the kosher food and all these laws or anything like that. But what he says here is true for all then, okay? 
And what he's saying is this. See if I can explain. What Paul is saying here is that when a person, Jew or Gentile, when a person comes to believe in Jesus in order to receive his righteousness, in order to be justified in him, they are, Jew or Gentile, they are forever in a completely new relationship with the law of God, the law of Moses. And that new relationship is so utterly different. The standing is so radically different that Paul says, I could only describe it in two ways, death and new life. <laughs> That's how different my relationship is with the law now, says Paul. Death and new life. Well, the same thing was true for you and me. Just that death to the law would be experienced one way by somebody who had lived like a Jew his whole life. And death to the law is experienced in another way by Gentiles who were never familiar with it, but they're dead to it now. So now we're asking ourselves, what in the world does it mean by I died to the law? And what he means is that when you come to Christ, beloved, you are filled with his righteousness and, and you have received the, atone, the, the benefits of his sacrifice for you. You have now died to the law's power and authority over your life and consequently you have died to, the, to all the consequences and, and punishments and uh, condemnation that comes from the law. Say it again, you have died to the law's power and authority over you and consequently you've died to its demands, you've died to its punishments, its condemnation. Sometimes people really hurt one another and it's sad when it happens in a family, and then somebody says, she's dead to me. He is dead to me. What's it, what, what do they mean? That means, I'm done. <laughs> Cut off completely. No association. It's as if he or she isn't alive. Now put that in this context. Paul is saying, when you become a Christian, at that moment, he says, you, 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 you are now dead, cut off from the law's power and authority over your life, your eternal soul, free from all its consequences, its damnation and its condemnation. That's what Paul means when he says that. And as a Jew, he and Peter would be thinking, therefore, also, Peter, that includes all the ceremonial stuff, all the preparatory stuff that was shadows, the temples, the sacrifices, the kosher food laws, the special days, all that stuff's gone too, Peter. All of that, you see. We've, we've died to that, Peter. We now know God in a different way and we worship him in a different way. That's ended. Now that brings up the next question of Paul's difficult statement. Okay, but how is it that Paul died to the law through the law. But that's what he says, right? I died to the law, to its demands, its consequences, through the law. <laughs> How is that the case? Because he says, I was crucified with Christ. <laughs> that's his point. That's how I died to the law. That's how you died to the law, he says. You see, what does the law demand? The law demands perfect righteousness. God is a God of love and mercy, but his justice prevents him from simply looking away 
And so the justice of God demands, uh, demands atonement. The soul that sins shall die, says the Old Testament law. Christ died according to the law. Paul goes on to say in Galatians, he was born under the law in the fullness of time. He lived under the law. He died under the law. Galatians chapter 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written where? In the law, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, and so and through Christ's fulfillment of the payment that was due for our sins according to the law, offered by a sinless, righteous representative, through his fulfillment of the law, Paul says he died to the law. I was crucified with Christ, says Paul. The law says the soul of sins shall die, and Paul sees himself incorporated into Christ's death so much that his death, Christ's death, was his. J. Graham Machen once wrote, he said, Christ died that death which the law fixes as the penalty of sin when he died upon the cross. And since he died that death as our representative, we too have died that death. The penalty of the law is for us done away because that penalty has been paid in our stead by the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. So Paul stands before the law. He stands before the law of God that demands perfection, sinless obedience, glad obedience that glorifies and honors God. Apart from that, there is need to to, to, to pay the consequences of that, of our guilt, and he stands before the law as one who has paid that debt. Why? Because I was crucified with Christ. The positive side, which we'll focus more on next week, is that he was also raised with Christ. He now lives to God, he says. This is all God's arrangement. How is that so? How can it happen? Because this is how God deems it. This is how God has planned it. This is how God sees it. This is how God has made it, you see. This is his plan of redemption. And the basis of everything we receive from Christ is called by uh, Bible scholars, theologians, is called union with Christ, our union with Christ. What does that mean? Union with Christ is a way of saying, of referring to every believer's spiritual solidarity. Every believer's spiritual solidarity with Christ. Every believer in Christ possesses an indissoluble, invisible connection to Jesus. We are one in Him. Sometimes it's called our mystic union. Why mystic? Because you don't see it. And it's not something you accomplish. It's not, go be united with Christ. You know, it's, it's invisible. It's like the new birth when Jesus says, you don't, it's like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see its consequences. You see its effects. 
So this is our union with Christ. And you say, well, why do they call it union with Christ? That comes from the fact that the preposition in, in is, is used some 200 plus times in the New Testament, primarily by Paul, uh, in this way. In Christ, Christ in us, in the Lord, the Lord in us, so forth, right? All the different combinations is used some 200 times in the New Testament. And what's interesting is that, you know, Paul, who wrote, what, the majority of the New Testament, Paul never refers to followers of Jesus as Christians. Not once. Did you know that? Not a single time does Paul refer to followers of Jesus as Christians. A few times he calls them saints. But mostly he uses a, that descriptive little phrase. Who are Christians? Christians or who are the believers? They are those who are in Christ. They are those in whom Christ dwells. And he does that literally hundreds of times, you see. And so there's where this idea of union with Christ comes from. And it is the foundation of all our spiritual experiences and blessings. Let me say that again. Being united to Christ, union with Christ is the foundation. Picture it as a foundation that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. It is the foundation of all our spiritual experiences and all our blessings in Christ, whether they're past, present, or future, you see. They all come from him, and we are in him, or united to him. Let me prove that to you briefly, and I'll turn to Ephesians chapter 1, that great uh, opening passage. The longest sentence in the Greek New Testament is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And if you'll be patient with me, or you want to follow there, you can look down, and you might have a different translation. But I'm telling you right now that Paul will refer to in Christ, or in the beloved one, or through Christ, 11 times in these 13 verses. And he lists here all the blessings that we possess. Listen to this. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Ready? I'll put my fingers up to help you count, okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, or beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him, verse 13, that's 10, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen, glory, hallelujah. I'm losing my breath. <laughs> in him, in Christ, he says, all heavenly blessings. Starting when? Before the foundation of the world. Bringing what? Forgiveness of sins, redemption. How long does it last? Until we come to the praise of his glory. All this is in him by being united to Christ. Look at it this way. All that human beings need to be set right with the living God is found in a person, the Son of God, the Son par excellence, who lived the life that we ought to live and died the death we deserve. And when we are connected to him, then we possess all that is his, and he possessed what is ours, which is what? Our sin and guilt. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's that great exchange. There, and, and in Galatians, there, there are two aspects to this union that we'll finish with here to emphasize. One is called a representative union, and the second is an experiential union. Uh, a representative union and an experiential union. Both are, are essential. They're both part of what it means to be a Christian. To be blessed in the beloved one, right? So the first is the basis of the other. Let me put it this way. So what is the representative union? Well, the Bible emphasizes a corporate solidarity that is beyond what most of us appreciate in living as we do when we do here. There's a corporate solidarity in the people of God and in humanity. In other words, the Bible speaks of a head of a body, Christ the head of the church, and there's a representation there. Adam, what? The first human being the head of the human race. And there's a corporate solidarity, a connection there. The one for the many. And when he rebelled against God, in his sin, all sinned. And Paul says that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He makes that clear. Romans 5, 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all human beings, all mankind, because all sinned. All sinned in his sin. Now you might say it doesn't seem fair to me. I like to take my own shot. Let me tell you, you would sin too. <laughs> and if you don't like being represented by the, by, by the first man, then, then it's no fair. You can't be represented by Christ either. <laughs> And this is what the Bible teaches, that there's such a thing as a corporate solidarity. God has designed it this way. A man named Achan in the Old Testament, uh, when they were taking the promised land, he sinned. He stole silver and gold and things and put them in his tent. All of Israel was punished for his sin. The one for the many. Corporate solidarity. Then there's David and Goliath. Sometimes we tell that account, we read that story and we try and tell it like some sort of moral, you know, moralistic story. You, you know, you need to find the five smooth stones of your life that'll 
that'll help you destroy the Goliaths that you face or something like that. Now, the ancient world had something that was very common to them, and that was representative warfare. And you could see why it would be good, rather than slaughtering a whole bunch of people, once in a while you had a representative warrior. The one for the many, and that was common then. That's exactly what happened. Goliath came out from the Philistines, and he says, choose a man from yourselves, among yourselves. Let him fight me. You know, if he kills me, then we'll serve you. If I kill him, then you'll serve us. And God used a, a, a young man who's, who was unfit for battle, but who simply had faith in the living God. And through the grace of God, he defeats this man who was a real warrior and who benefited from it. All of Israel benefited. The one for the many, you see. And we have other ways we kind of do that in our culture sometimes. You know, that the, um, you know, in sports, we do that a lot. Those of you that follow sports teams, right now there's playoff games, right? So you're, 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 the team scores a touchdown, you jump up, we scored! <laughs> you, you're eating potato chips. I mean, <laughs> the, he scored. Yeah, but we are winning, you see. That's the idea here. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter of, of, of on the resurrection that we looked at some time ago, that, that we died in Adam, but we're going to be raised in Christ because he's our, he's our new, he calls him the last Adam, our new representative head. Let's see if I find that. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, he says, as by a man came death, we're back to the first man, by a man all, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But wait a minute, not everyone's going to heaven. Ah, each in his first, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. They are those who are in Christ, you see, in our head. I know that's so harder to accept in our individualistic society, but this is, the, this is the, the, the plan of redemption, how God has made it to be. Christ represents us so thoroughly, so completely. Remember, we're on representative union. Christ represents us so thoroughly that New Testament Greek scholars think that Paul made up, coined a bunch of words. I say that because the, these words that Paul uses are not found anywhere else outside of the Greek New Testament in any ancient Greek literature. And that's how the Greek language works, meaning you could add a prefix or suffix and, and, and do things. What, what Paul did is to, to try and convey how, how deeply and profoundly we are, uh, are, are in Christ, our union with him, that he took the preposition with and, and connected it to verbs that had never been done before. And so Paul writes things and says, we've been raised with, that's one word, the Greek New Testament, raised with Christ, buried with Christ, uh, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, made alive together with, he put three words there together. And here he says what? I have been, say it with me, I have been crucified with Christ representative union. I am so united to Christ in the eyes of God because this is how God has made it that when Christ died on the cross, I died on the cross. 
It was as though I was present in his death. That was my death. And therefore, he uses, in fact, he uses, a, he uses the Greek perfect tense when he says, I've been crucified, which speaks of an st ongoing state or an ongoing condition. I have been and I remain right here before the law as the one who was crucified when Christ was crucified. Therefore, he can say in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in, in Christ Jesus. Well, that brings us to the second aspect of union, the experiential union. In other words, the question would then be, well, how could Paul say I was crucified with Christ when, you know, Paul, Paul was persecuting Christians. He didn't even know who Jesus was when Christ was crucified. How could we say I was crucified with Christ when, you know, it's been 2,000 years, you see. Ah, uh, you see, we were crucified with him representative as, as, in his representation and our union with him in that sense. But there's a point in time when we experience that co-crucifixion and we experience that co-resurrection. In other words, there's a point in time when a person who was crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago experiences that reality in his or her life, and when is that moment? Well, for Paul, that was when he was on, a way, on his way to, to persecute Christians, and God met him on Damascus Road, you see? And for you and me, when does that moment happen? It happens with the, in the same way. When God meets us, opens our eyes to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. We are born again, born by the Spirit, born from above, and we're given the gift of faith, and in that moment we realize who Jesus truly is, we repent of our sin, and we embrace him, you see. And it's that, at that moment that you experience co-crucifixion, death to the law, your conscience is set free. And you also experience co-resurrection, that's next week. The life I now live, Paul says. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me, he says, in the remainder of the verse. Christ for me, representative union before the foundation of the world. I was chosen in the beloved one. Representative union, when? When he was born on this earth, when he lived every day a sinless life, when he suffered, died, was crucified, was buried when he was raised from the dead and when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. My, I'm in Christ and all of that representative. Christ for me, Christ in me, the moment I was born again and believed in him. And now I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and dwells in me and so forth. That's where Paul's going. Tremendous. Union with Christ, the foundation of everything. We'll be talking about it again next week in the positive side and also be the subject of my upcoming article in the, in the Grace Life newsletter. Let me quote this for you. A Baptist hymn writer from the 1700s, his name was John Kent. He wrote a hymn called, that he entitled, Exalting in Eternal Union with Jesus. Hail, sacred union, firm and strong. How great thy grace, how sweet the song that rebel worms should ever be one with incarnate deity. 
One in the tomb, one when he rose, one when he triumphed over his foes. One when in heaven he took his seat while seraphs sung at hell's defeat. This sacred tie forbids their fears for all he is or has is theirs. This is the gospel. What happened to Peter? He knew this. He was pressured. He lost sight of the cross. He lost sight of the all-sufficiency of Jesus and what he's done. He lost sight of the perfect righteousness that was already his and began to do what he was doing, rebuilding. Rebuilding what? Well, what Christ tore down. He was returning to what used to define him because he lost sight of who defines him now. That was Peter. Like I said, it's easy to pick on Peter. But you and I can do the very same things. Let's be honest. What happens when we lose sight of the cross? Well, we return to a performance-based relationship with the living God. It's a way of viewing our relationship with Him. We begin to measure God's love for us in the present by how well we're doing in the present. And again, when things are going good in our life, I'm reading like I said I read, and I I kept up with my New Year's resolution. I was going to pray so much a day, or I was going to journal. I was going to do that. When things are going good, I feel good about my relation with God, or when things aren't going good, I feel bad. I pull away. I pray even less. I feel um, I feel unworthy. When things are going well, not only do I look at myself wrongly in that way, but I start, when things are going well, I start evaluating others by that as well, right? When things are going really well, I can start looking down on my brothers and sisters in the church who, you know, they, they don't read as much as I do. They don't pray as much as I do. I begin to see myself as morally superior. You know, is, is, is this you, either of these? Unworthy, superior, you see. You've lost sight of the cross. When we lose sight of the cross, we begin to serve out of sheer duty. And we lose our joy, our gratitude. Um, Don't get me wrong, there's duty in the Christian life, but duty is not the main motive of the Christian life. The love of Christ compels me, says Paul. It's almost like Paul never lost sight of the fact that The one he persecuted loved him. That's what impelled him. Is this you, you see? Are you you tired of serving the body of Christ? Joyless in your your ministry to others? Doesn't have to be here in official ministries, just joyless about loving others for Christ? Or, Or maybe you just pull that way altogether from it all. Just, you've lost sight of the cross. When we lose sight of the cross, um, our struggle with sin can become hopeless and we forget that he said, Lo, I'm with you always. Not just when on your good days. I'm with you always. 
When you lose sight of the cross, you lose sight of the fact that he said that he is faithful to complete that work he began in you. You lose sight of the fact that he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So let's not lose sight of the cross, okay? And that's the focus of the book of Galatians. Let's keep digging in. I encourage you, read Galatians. Read it. And ask the Lord to give you insight. The Lord graciously, through the communion, he brings us back. You see, this is church. What is church? It's it's, it is those who are in Christ coming together with those who are in Christ telling each other about the fact that we're in Christ, <laughs> remembering the fact that we're in Christ and laying all our sins and our struggles before the, the cross of Christ yet again, not judging one another, but loving one another. And the Lord gives us communion to bring us always back to the core. This is what it's all about, his death his body, his blood, his resurrection. So let's pray and prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Lord, it's so easy to forget that we are on equal ground with every other sinner who's come to find the righteousness of Christ by faith, by your gift. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to see each other as those who are in Christ and to seek to love and serve you and others out of joy and gratitude for your glorious generosity in Jesus, what you've done for us. We pray that you would give faith to those who do not have it, do not know what it means, or do not see themselves yet as crucified in Christ. Help them to rest in that and open their eyes. We pray you come and meet us now, Lord, as we come to this communion service, Lord, and and come to the table. Please meet us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.